Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace. We thank you, Lord, for this story of restoration and redemption. Thank you for Kirk and Stephanie and their courage to share their vulnerability. May it be an encouragement to us this morning. Father, we thank you that you restore, that you redeem, that you give us hope even when things seem hopeless. As we open your word this morning, Lord, I pray that my words are clear, that they're helpful, that they bring you glory and honor. Burn off whatever doesn't do those things. Holy Spirit, we need you to be our teacher this morning. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. What a story. What pain, what redemption. As you walk into this place this morning, some of you come in a, in a place of living in the aftermath of some type of mess. Whatever caused that, whatever created that, you're, everything may look okay on the outside, but inside you're reeling because you're in the aftermath of some type of mess. Some of you this morning, as you walk in to this place, you're right smack dab in the middle of something really, really hard. Or you're in the middle of being in relationship with somebody else who's going through something really, really hard. Some of you, as you walk into this place, you may say, you may look at their story, you may look at the story we're going to read, and you're going to say, you know what, that could never, ever happen to me. That could never happen to my kids. Wherever you are, as you walk into this room, God's Word is going to give us a window into this battle with sin. It's going to give us a warning, and then it's going to give us a way forward. So we've been in this series called A Faith of Influence, and we've been looking at various people in First and Second Samuel and how they deal with particular situations. And then how, how can we look at those situations and how can they point us to Jesus and, and give us a way forward and help us in our own influence. So this morning we're going to look at this story of David and Bathsheba. And we're going to do it through this particular lens. I, I, you know, as I look at this, this is such a big story. There's the story of all of David and Bathsheba. There's the story of Nathan's confrontation of David. And then as we read and confessed together, there's Psalm, Psalm 51. So we're going to take a few snippets of that story and then try to be helpful this morning um, and share a word that I believe God's put on my heart for each one of us today. 
Our guide, really, as we dig into the story, though, comes from Romans 15, 4. The Apostle Paul says this, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So that's our goal this morning. I want to take you to 2 Samuel 11, beginning in verse 1. And I'm going to read a few sections of this account. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. I want to jump down to verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And then chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me and took the wife of, the, of <clears throat> Uriah the Hittite to be 
your own. Now, as we look at this particular account from God's Word this morning, I want to suggest that there are two truths that the story points to. Two fundamental truths that we're going to try to wrap our minds around this morning, and then a bottom line of application that we'll drive towards. The first truth is this, we are capable of more sin than we think. We are capable of more sin than we think. Welcome to church. But that's true. We're capable of more sin than we think. I am capable of more sin than I sometimes think. Consider this for a moment. Think about who David is. David is a man described as a man after God's own heart. the most beautiful expressions of a relationship, a delight in the Lord, some of those come from David. God would inspire David to write so many of the Psalms. David would do so many things, and yet David fell in a mighty way. If David could fall, What does that mean for you and me? It means it could happen to us. It means we're capable of that. Now, let's pause for a moment and let's not sugarcoat what what David has done here. One of the things I really appreciate about God's Word is it's, it's a true account It doesn't gloss over things. It doesn't minimize it. There's nothing in the text that said somehow Bathsheba was seducing David or somehow there was this clandestine affair. She's a faithful wife who bathes like every other woman in the culture. David doesn't know who she is. He has to inquire about her. And then he sends for her. As we look at this objectively, I don't think we can see any evidence in the text that points anywhere else than to David as the guilty party here. That's what we see. Again, if David could do this. Now, Last week, we saw a wonderful picture of David and his grace to Mephibosheth. And I don't know if there's another figure in the Bible who has such a range of behavior. And as I was studying this and and, and preparing for, for the word this morning, I would invite you to consider, as have I, that given the right circumstances, opportunities, attack, desperation, pain, what would we be capable of? I believe this drives us to a posture of humility 
and dependence. There's a spiral to David's sin. We didn't read all of the account, but what starts off as a look progresses. We'll see David, first of all, try to cover up his sin by calling Uriah back from the battlefield and saying, come home, take a break from the battle, go be with your wife, and then everyone will think this is your baby and everything will be covered up. And then that doesn't work, so he says, now I'm going to give him drink, and he's going to get drunk, and he'll do it, and he doesn't. He remains faithful to his commitment to his men. There was a, uh, a practice of, of saying, I will, I will abstain during battle, because that's what everybody did. Who is Uriah? He's not a random soldier. He's one of David's mighty men, one who would give his life for David. We see the pain and the irony of what David would, would do in having him killed. Others would die with him on the battlefield. So we see the depth and the spiral of David's sin. James says it this way in chapter 1, verse 13, about this progression of sin. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. As we look at David's story and we, in some sense, try to rewind the film and say, how, how could it have been different? We're going to talk about grace. We're going to talk about redemption. We're going to talk about all those things which are great. And God can redeem, God can restore any situation. There is always hope. Amen? At the same time, I don't think anybody who's been through horrific pain would say, you know what, I would do it the same way all over again. So how do we look at this, learn, and apply? We see that David ignores the warnings. At some level, he says, who is this woman? And even the fact that the servants call her by name and say she is a wife, she is a daughter, she is a real person. David just goes on and does what he does. The same David who will go to his enemy and say, is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I could show kindness? Just does this. Who is this beautiful woman that I can use and abuse for my pleasure? That's what he does. Now, the question for us today, because we, I know at least, dude, I, I want to resist this narrative. I don't want to say, I wouldn't do that. That's not me. But I believe we can learn for it, from it by having the humility to say, I'm capable of more than what I may think. So do you have a healthy, sober view of your own capacity for sin? Now, not, not, a, not, a, not a cliched version of this. Not a just kind of, 
just something I'd put up on the refrigerator that says, I'm a, I'm a sinner saved by grace, that's all true, but, but is there something in the depth of my being that says I can look at myself clearly and know that I am capable and I need Jesus? I have to have a sober view of myself. Paul says it this way, Romans 12, 3, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Sober judgment. Let, let me, let's try to make this a little bit concrete this morning. I want you to do this. I, wa- I want you to think about your patterns. Think about your anger. Think about your lust. Think about your greed. Whatever those patterns are, whatever those propensities may be, and they're not all the same. Your struggle may not be my struggle. But there's a root that's the same. So how do you do that? Let's let's play the pattern forward for just a moment and see what would happen. What, What if that pattern continued? Where would it lead you to? See, the potential of the pattern, wherever you are in life, wherever your journey, we've seen enough prominent people fall in the church, in Scripture, (laughs) that we ought to pay attention to this. And when we play it forward, what it does, it gives us the opportunity to say, hey, maybe I need some new patterns in my life. Maybe if I have a sober view of myself, let me look at the potential and maybe there are some patterns that I need to change. Maybe there's a way that I need to look at this differently. Let me take this from a generational perspective. Some of you are young and you're, you're getting started and you're, you know, maybe you're starting your, your, your first job, you're heading off to college, you're in high school, whatever, and you've got so much in front of you. What are your patterns right now? And if you, if you played those, what do you struggle with? And play that forward. And then be open to say, all right, maybe I need some new patterns. I need some new habits. Some of your parents and you're like, Someday your kids are going to grow up and they're going to look back. What do you want them to say about you? What do you you want that example to be? Some of you are in later stages of life and you're trying to finish strong. And the good news of grace and the gospel is it's never too late. I love it when I see people in their later stages of life say, God's not finished with me yet. I can still grow. I can still grow to become more like Jesus, and I'm going to have some new practices in that. Wherever you are, it's not too soon and it's not too late. I was reminded of a conversation I had with one of our impact partners, Matt Casey, once who does campus outreach ministry, and he said as he talks to college students sometimes who have so much 
in front of them, they will say to him, oh, I'd love to talk to you, but not yet. Not now. Because I want to go out and do some things right now. And I know if I have that conversation with you, it's going to make me feel bad. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to feel bad about doing what I'm doing. Now, the lie of the world is, just sow your wild oats and everything will be fine later. The reality is you're, you're, you're laying down some behavior patterns that become harder and harder to change over time. Some of you know that to be true the hard way. Well, this is hard stuff. Let me get to some good news here. Amen? The second truth. God's grace is more incomprehensible, more multifaceted, and more practical than we think. What do I mean by that? We see that David is confronted by the prophet Nathan. You are the man. That is you. By David's own standards, he deserves to die. But yet, he will be spared. He will suffer the consequences of sin. That child will die. The sword will never leave his house. But at the same time, as we read this prayer of confession, and we see the restoration in response to David's sincere prayer, Again, I take you back to verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. There's a dependence upon the character of God, his unfailing love, his mercy. That's what David is appealing to. Not his own behavioral change, but the very character of God. And that's the essence of of grace, it's unmerited favor, it's God giving us what we need, it's God providing what we cannot do in and of ourselves. When we think of this grace, yes, it's a prayer of dependence, it's a prayer of restoration. David is forgiven. But I want us to see some other things about grace for a minute. I believe at one level, it's beyond our ability to fully comprehend it. Even as I, I heard Kirk and Stephanie's story, my, my wow, wow. There's a level of grace and mercy and forgiveness that I say, wow. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3 says this, For this reason I kneel before my Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. There's something about grace and mercy that goes beyond what my little brain can comprehend. I can give you the formula, I can give you a textbook definition, but there's always more to God's grace. 
Part of what Paul is praying for is may you see that, may you experience that love and that grace. And I believe to do that, we need to see grace in its different dimensions, in its practicality. A few verses from Paul. Ephesians 4, 7 says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. He says this in the context of different spiritual gifts that we've been given. Peter says this, 1 Peter 4.10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. People are God's grace supply chain system. People. I think of the counselor that spent time with Kirk and staff. That's part of God's grace distribution system there. People. 2 Peter 3.17 says, uh, Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the, law, <clears throat> of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. There is a growth to grace. Even back in Acts 20, as the church is exploding, so be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Grace is not just the one time I've prayed to receive Christ and I have been forgiven. That's a wonderful truth, that Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for my sin. If you've never taken, taken that step of faith and trust, today's your day to simply do that. But my assumption is that many of you have done that, and yet there's, there's a level of disconnect between that and our daily experience of God's grace that can fuel us. So I believe these two truths that I'm, I'm, I'm capable of the worst and God's grace is probably better than I can think of, I want to give us this bottom line and we'll, I'll introduce it today and then I think we'll take some time next week to flesh it out a little bit more. But the bottom line is we all need a training program. We all need to train because training beats trying. Training beats trying. We understand this in the physical domain. I think we have a harder time in the spiritual. If I said this, go out and run a marathon. And you said, you know what? I'm going to do it next week, and I'm going to try really hard. <laughs> if you haven't been training, how's that going to go for you? You're going to die. <laughs> I don't care how much try hard you got in you. Okay? I'd like to be able to squat 500 pounds. You laugh at me. <laughs> I could get under the rack, put that on my back, 
There was a day once, but that day's long gone. <laughs> Boom, I'm going to the ground. If I'm going to train, I'm going to need to work on my mobility, my flexibility. I got a long ways to go to even begin to think about that. Simply trying hard without training in the spiritual life does not work well. I want to suggest to us, and I'm simply going to outline it today and we'll, we'll dig in more next week, but there are three things, three components of this training program that we need, and we see it in the absence of David's life, or it's going to point to something in his life that I think is helpful for us. First thing we need, people who have the permission to challenge us. David had people around him, he had servants, but they did not have the permission to challenge him. It was only the prophet himself, Nathan, who could do that. And he himself doesn't even do it directly. He's got to tell him a story and do it indirectly for David to see. But do you have people in your life who have the permission to challenge you? To help us see what we don't see. That's painful to do that. But it's helpful. If you've done any kind of therapy, done it. It's hard. It's not fun. But it's helpful to be in a small group and, and get together with a few folks and say, how are you really doing? Let me, let me examine my life. Let's do this together. Help me see what I don't see. That can be painful. It can be hard. It's easier to just talk about the colds. Well, maybe not. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see how they do. Talk about the weather. Talk about the cold. Talk about whatever. But how are you, at the depth of your soul, how are you really doing? That's hard. But it's what we need. There's a purpose that drives us. Part of David's problem is uh, when kings went off to war, David remained at home. The narrator brings that out. What's hard sometimes with purpose, though, we can, we can see it in the physical domain, but sometimes in the spiritual domain, it's hard to make that concrete. If only we knew what was ahead, perhaps we would train more. And then finally, and I'll close with this, uh, we need a process that changes us. And part of that process, I'm convinced more and more, and uh, I'm going to borrow a phrase from Dr. Henry Cloud. He says this, we all, we all need a plumbing system in our lives. Think about what a plumbing system does. You take all the sin, all the pain, all the hurt, and you got to process that. And you got to filter out what you need to, and you got to deal with it. And read the book of Psalms, and you're going to see part of that filtering system. So this morning, I'm just simply going to leave you with those three. And I'm going to pray, and we're going to come back next week and dig in a little bit more. So would you, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for both its warning and its, its promise. And we ask now, even as we prepare to come to the table, 
that your Holy Spirit would continue to do the work that only you can. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.